You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, peace be upon you. Good morning, and welcome to the Rapper Show at the Voice of Islam. With the myself, The time is approaching three minutes past seven. It's Friday, the eighth of July. 2022, the uh, Voice of Islam broadcasts uh, the breakfast show is an interactive one. It means our uh, listeners have the opportunity to ring in and share their thoughts with us. Uh, the number to dial is 0208-687-7878. So if you have a comment to make on anything that we may be discussing, then please do uh, feel free to uh, take uh, benefit from that particular uh, uh, telephone line or you can uh, share your thoughts with us through uh, uh, the Twitter the uh, Twitter handle is Voice of Islam UK uh, in a few minutes time we'll be uh, beginning the rundown of the weather before going on to examine some of the news stories that are going to be doing uh, that we're going to be considering uh, news stories that are doing the rounds these days uh, no guessing for what the main story is something uh, that happened quite dramatically yesterday but uh, We'll be looking at that um, and the reasons why it happened uh, also. Um, and also at other stories that um, have uh, emerged. Uh, as far as uh, the two main topics are concerned, and this is also something that we do at the breakfast show, that we look at two main stories. We spend more time on each uh, examining uh, these two stories in greater detail. Well, uh, today the first one uh, relates to the cost of living and um, uh, the cost of living that has been exacerbated by inflation and its impact on food prices. So we'll be covering aspects of this under our first topic. Uh, the title of that is UK inflation rises at fastest rate for 40 years as food, as food costs jump. Uh, give the title again, UK inflation rises at fastest rate for 40 years as food costs jump. So that's the topic that we will be uh, looking at. Uh, this is going to be between 7.30 to 8.15. We'll be joined by maths teacher and happiness coach Khalid Safir, uh, who will hopefully help us understand this subject better. Uh, and we may also be joined by a political commentator uh, if uh, contact is made uh, with, uh, with him in time, but uh, that's something that we need to... Uh, that needs to be confirmed. As far as our second topic is concerned, uh, it's something uh, well a bit different. It is uh, the one million dollar challenge. Uh, if the Turing shroud is a forgery, show how it was done. So, if you're up for a million dollars, then uh, that is something perhaps that can be taken up. Uh, we'll be looking at various aspects of this, um, and in uh, particular, uh, considering. Um, uh, this particular r r relic uh, with uh, the help of uh, Shroud expert Pam Moon. And we'll also be sharing uh, the views of Arif Khan and Bob Rucker. Both, I'm sure, are well-versed uh, in uh, the details of this particular item, a historical item, the sh during Shroud. Uh, and uh, that's going to be between... 8.15 and 9 o'clock, so lots to cover, lots to do. And as always, we shall have the invaluable input from our Imam Tawqeet and we providing the Islamic angle to this 
uh, uh, to, every, uh, to everything we may be covering. Uh, and now that I mention his name, it's best if I pass the mic on to him. Say assalamu alaikum, and uh, perhaps he can tell us a bit uh, about the weather to start off with. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Uh, once again, uh, I feel very privileged to uh, present alongside Brother Walid. Um, and uh, as mentioned by Brother Walid, we have a very packed program for our listeners today. But uh, remember, if any of our listeners do have any opinions or have anything to say, you are more than welcome to join in the conversation. And uh, you can do this by calling on our 208-687-7878. Yes, so um, I'll start the discussion of, uh, to this morning from the weather. And the weather is uh, looking very good. Uh, not just this week, but next week as well. And just the forecast for today, um, it shows that just here in London, uh, it will go up to 28 degrees. Um, and a brief summary of the weather forecast is today and early patchy, patches of cloud will soon clear this morning and it will be dry and fine uh, day with widespread sunshine throughout and a very warm day with light winds. And the forecast for tonight this evening uh, and tonight will continue dry with extremely it with extensively clear skies throughout and it will be a rather mild night with light to gentle breezes expected uh, so this is the weather co- forecast and this is from bbc weather yes so um uh, i'd love to hear the <laughs> r- mm. uh, news roundup from you brother Vidit, but uh, oh, yeah. um i'll i'll just start off uh, with uh, with our with our listeners um as our listeners would know as well that this weekend uh, muslims all around the world they will be celebrating their eid um yeah, some will be celebrating on saturday some will be celebrating on sunday the amdi muslim community will be uh, celebrating the Eid, Eid al-Adha on, on this Sunday. And Eid al-Adha uh, is also known as the Festival of Sacrifices and celebrates Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, readiness to follow God Almighty's commandment by offering his son, Prophet Ishmael, peace be upon him, as a sacrifice. However, before he could do so, God pr- provided him with a lamb to be slaughtered instead. And on the occasion of Eid al-Adha, animals are sacrificed in remembrance of the devotion shown by Abraham, peace be upon him, and Ishmael, peace be upon him, to Allah the Exalted. So that's just a little um, short overview of what Eid al-Adha is. Thank you very much. Uh, well, uh, lots uh, of things happening early this week, especially uh, events that came to the fore yesterday, uh, quite a brutal series of events, some would have said, uh, that unfolded against the Prime Minister uh, the day before yesterday. They left him with no option but to resign uh, yesterday morning. Uh, he had to face, uh, on Wednesday, a grueling PMQs at midday, where even his own MPs were asking him to leave. And this when uh, the leader of the opposition was weighing in with crushing questions against the Prime Minister and honing in onto the front uh, bench, calling them a lightweight brigade of Z listeners uh, willing to serve in, in government. Um, as if this was not enough, the uh, Prime Minister then had to face a parliamentary liaison committee uh, on Wednesday uh, that afternoon who savaged him over his conduct, including the possibility of cabinet ministers gathering as they spoke to tell him to leave. 
they weren't wrong. A series of senior ministers met the Prime Minister, he said, individually, uh, saying that his time was up. All this amidst an avalanche of resignations, the most ever experienced, he said, uh, uh, refusing uh, to serve in the government. There were some 59 or more in the end. It made the governing uh, uh, extremely difficult. As if this was not enough, the influential 1922 committee was having its elections to form a new uh, committee on Monday, and they were expected to change their rules to initiate a no-confidence vote against the Prime Minister as early as Tuesday vote, uh, which in all probability he would have lost. Uh, the die was cast, and the Prime Minister finally resigned yesterday more afternoon as leader of the party, not as Prime Minister. Uh, it means that the door is now open uh, for a new leader and, the, uh, and uh, a new Prime Minister to be appointed. Uh, the Prime Minister will stay on until a new leader is elected. Uh, there is a long list of prospective hopefuls. Uh, the first was the Attorney General, Suela Beverman, uh, followed by, it is said, 20 or 21 others. Uh, they will need eight MPs to support them before they can move forward. So that's the big events that took place in the last two two days. Um, what can also be uh, mentioned when you analyze it, that there's a number uh, as to why uh, such a popular leader at one time had uh, attained such a hefty majority, something like 80 seats, uh, advantage over um, uh, over um, others, an 80 seat majority in parliament, in fact, uh, over all others put together. Why he became so unpopular uh, within the span of just two and a half years? Uh, a number of scandals uh, can be identified to have led to to the prime minister downfall, but one key factor that runs throughout them. Uh, was uh, an absence of uh, truth and honesty uh, when it came, for example, to the holding of uh, parties during the lockdown. It wasn't the fact that parties took place, but the denial uh, and in the late, uh, that was so damaging. And in the latest uh, Chris uh, Pincher affair, um, it was not so much as a mi- mistaken appointing him as deputy chief whip but the denial he knew about the history of the man before appointing him. And this was untrue, I mean, uh, as uh, was exposed quite um, uh, plainly later on. And um, so uh, uh, when you review the resignation letters, it seems that this particular reason, that of honesty or the absence of honesty and uh, truthfulness lay at the heart of many uh, a minister that uh, was unwilling to serve under him. Uh, Sajid Javed, <coughs> who uh, set the ball rolling, uh, said in his uh, speech in the House of Commons that treading the tightrope between loyalty and integrity has become impossible. Uh, uh, Rachel McLean, Home Office Minister, said values, principles, integrity and decency matter more than anything. Uh, and then trust, truth, and integrity are vital in our work as politicians or public servants. That's Elaine Saxby. Uh, there comes a time, Stuart Andrew uh, says, there comes a time when you have to look at your own personal integrity, and that time is now. Uh, uh, 
Churchill, uh, Joe Churchill, junior minister in environment, said integrity, competence, and judgment are all essential uh, to the role of the prime minister. And then finally, Laura Trott, permanent secretary, uh, permanent private secretary in the transport department, said transport, uh, said trans- trust in politics is and must always be of the most utmost importance. But uh, uh, this has been lost. So trust, honesty, truth uh, is uh, vital in. Uh, uh, in this um, particular job, it seems, as Muslims would say, that trust, honesty, truthfulness is something that is vital in our uh, in our entire conduct, wherever it may be. Uh, but it seems that this has been the root cause for the downfall of uh, what many believe was a very able and talented individual to be uh, prime minister. Some would disagree. Uh, and uh, you can have your say on this particular issue, this very big story, uh, by ringing in 0208-687-7878, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, we were talking earlier about uh, this uh, Eid al-Azhar that's uh, approaching us uh, this weekend. Uh, it's very much associated uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the uh, celebrations uh, with uh, uh, <coughs> is associated with sacrifice and the consuming of uh, of a lot of meat. Uh, and uh, what's caught my eye when I was looking through w- what news to present or items of news to present, I was uh, um, attracted to this particular uh, item on, on that. Uh, register the fact that Cambridge University has actually introduced a meat ban. Uh, this is in one of its canteens. Uh, it's an 88-year-old canteen at one of its most uh, reputable colleges uh, at, the, at the University of Cambridge. Uh, beef and lamb are going to be banned. Uh, this will be in favor uh, of vegetarian and vegan alternatives. And it's uh, an attempt to limit the impact of its catering operations, it said, on the environment. And uh, another quote was to promote sustainable practices. Uh, This ban is being instituted in its uh, tea room in the library. It follows banning the meat in uh, 2016. So this is not something new, but there was an initiative in 2016 to try and uh, ban meat across all the dining venues of the university. And the policy has been credited already with the reduction of carbon emissions by 33% from the university. The number of people in the UK uh, who have given uh, up meat has risen dramatically. Uh, The Vegan Society claims there are 600,000 vegans, uh, or there were 600,000 vegans in 2019, uh, up from 150,000 in 2014, and this number uh, is has risen uh, significantly. Um, now that we are in 2022, as far as uh, students are concerned, it appears that uh, they are six times more likely than their parents to go vegan or vegetarian, so much, much more conscious uh, of um, the consumption of meat and refraining from it. I mean, there's a sobering thought for all of us 
celebrating Eid al-Azawiyah. The consumption of meat is expected to increase, albeit for a few days. Um, as far as uh, Islamic teaching is concerned, we've mentioned this many a time, that um, it's about uh, being sensible and not exceeding bounds that is important. So everything within its limits, uh, consuming uh, is, is permitted. Anything that is lawful, according to tenets of Islam, but uh, eating within its limits is, is what is what is advocated. Uh, anything else? Uh, shall I uh, go on to Wimbledon? Or? Yeah, the, there was uh, one, one particular uh, news item I did want to mention, um, and this was, uh, this was regards to the MDM Muslim community, and, and the head of the MDM Muslim community addresses addresses the international conference on freedom of religion i don't know if you had a chance to read anything about that no. um so on the on the 5th of july um, 2022 oh, yes. the world head of the md muslim community the fifth caliph his holiness he addressed the opening preliminary session of the international ministerial conference on freedom of religion or or belief 2022 through a special recorded video message and uh, the event held at the Queen Elizabeth II Centre in London was organised by the UK government and was aimed at urging increased global action on freedom of religion and belief and brought together governments, parliamentarians, faith representatives and civil society. And the opening session also included messages from His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, and the British Prime Minister, amongst other dignitaries and faith leaders. And uh, during his message, His Holiness um, commented the objectives of the conference and outlined the Quranic teachings on freedom of religion and called attention towards the importance of people recognizing their Creator in bringing about true uh, lasting peace. And His Holiness, he said that freedom of religion and belief are core human rights that must be preserved and protected for everyone and everywhere. And though we are living in an increasingly secularized world in which people are moving away from religion and many millions of people around the world continue to adhere to religious values and it is essential that they are able to live their lives according to their beliefs and convictions. His Holiness mentioned the persecution and the Muslims face because of their faith in Islam and outlined that Muslim MDs shall never respond to hatred in in any kind. His Holiness said that the MD Muslim community has itself been the victim of grave religious persecution to the extent that the obnoxious laws have enacted against us preventing our members from professing and practicing their basic religious beliefs. And over a period of many decades, MD Muslims have been mercilessly targeted only because of their religious beliefs and many have lost their lives as a result of utterly inhumane and barbaric acts by religious extremists. Um, furthermore, speaking on the response of MD Muslim His Holiness, he continued and stated that we MD Muslims have never and will never respond to such hatred and cruelty in a like fashion and rather our response will always be one of love and peace based on the teachings of Islam. And we say to Muslims and non-Muslims alike that all people must always be free to profess and practice their peaceful, held religious beliefs. 
and uh, i mean this is a very interesting topic as well if we study the holy quran as well the the holy quran itself says that laikraha fiddin in uh, in the second chapter in surah baqarah that there is no compulsion in religion and so what that means is that even uh, even if someone who is not a muslim i could be a christian or or could be of a person of other faith islam says that uh you should not compel one another in any way uh, and everyone has their right to choose uh which religion they they wish to adopt and this is in accordance with the teachings of islam so that was just a uh short press release of the head of the muslim community his address uh, address that he gave at the international conference on freedom of religion oh wonderful very interesting thank you for that Um, well, I mentioned Wimbledon earlier, so this is the uh, tennis tournament. Uh, I've been forced to uh, watch some of this because my children are quite uh, uh, enthusiasts, uh, have become enthusiasts of this tournament. Uh, mercifully, there's only a few days to go now. Um, well, it's supposed to be one of the biggest uh, tournaments, and uh, as I said, that the final stages, or as I indicated, the final stages are in the next few days. Uh, the ladies' finals will be played tomorrow, likely to be between Eleanor uh, Rybakina and Onas Jabur of Tunisia. Uh, the men's final uh, sees Nick uh, Krios uh, also reach a Wimbledon final uh, for the very first time. So both these ladies have never been uh, in the final of Wimbledon, so it's a first for them. And the same with uh, Nick when it comes to the uh, uh, men's section. So uh, Nick Kyrgios is the first, uh, has reached uh, the Wimbledon final for the first time. Uh, so it's a couple of uh, historical finals in that respect. Uh, what will make it even more historic uh, is if Cameron Norrie beats the favorite uh, Novak Djokovic today uh, in the semis. Uh, that will make uh, all four the first to have reached the final base. Uh, seems unlikely, we think. Uh, Novak will prevail. Um, there are some grumblings about Cameron Norrie's uh, credentials of being British. Uh, there's an unfair um, how kind of eagerness, I suppose, to adopt sportsmen as our own because we can't produce talented players ourselves. This is the accusation. But to put the record straight, uh, Norrie may have been born in South Africa and brought up in New Zealand. Uh, that's the criticism. But he did have uh, sc- uh, a Scottish uh, father and a Welsh mother, so very much uh, British. Uh, perhaps not English, but very much British. Uh, on a separate note, <coughs> and perhaps uh, on a slightly more serious one, <coughs> there is some disquiet about Nick Rios and uh, his behavior. Uh, he may be an exciting player with a style uh, that is exciting uh, due to its unpredictability. Uh, but his attitude to authority serves a bad example uh, to the youth. Uh, certain outbursts can be explained as things said in the heat of the moment, uh, but there is a certain uh, flouting of authority that is uh, worrying. Uh, for instance, the authorities at Wimbledon have a rule about wearing white, but he insists on wearing his red Jordans, uh, that's shoes and cap, And when asked why he did so, despite the rules, he quite arrogantly retorted, uh, because I, I do what I want. Uh, and that's, as I said, is a very poor example uh, for others, uh, uh, especially the young, 
that uh, are watching uh, this game. Uh, we should all remember the chronic refrain about obedience. Uh, Obey Allah and his messenger and those put in authority over you is what we are uh, instructed to do. And the whole ex- uh, point of uh, these kinds of injunctions uh, is to create peace and stability in, in communities and in societies and to remove disorder uh, if a tennis player dislikes the rules of a tournament, then he should stay away from it. But it is wrong for a competitor to come to a tournament, hope to win the millions that it is, that uh, are are being offered, uh, and then not submit uh, himself or herself to the rules uh, that um, they they impose uh, in all decency. It uh, demands the observance of, uh, of rules and not to consider oneself entitled uh, to be above them. So that, that's my take on this. I don't know what um, our uh, uh, listeners feel. Um, do you think that that's a fair comment uh, made on uh, this kind of behavior, that it should it is something that's condemnable? Uh, or do you think that uh, it's all in the spirit of sport and we should uh, uh, leave it as it is? If you do have a view on this, then please do ring in 0208-687-7878. So that's Wimbledon. Um, There is uh, also now the uh, government is in uh, a sort of flux now but uh, there are certain stories, the ramifications of which uh, uh, still remain with us, uh, particularly the uh, initiative about uh, sending uh, migrants to Rwanda. Uh, ministers now face a new clash with judges in Strasbourg uh, after refugee charities revealed that more than 50 migrants are set for imminent re- removal to Rwanda. You may remember that one flight was in fact stopped and suspended because uh, the uh, uh, Human Rights Court, uh, European, Co- uh, European Court of Human Rights, uh, actually <coughs> actually um, uh, initiated an injunction uh, to stop the flight, uh, to stop the um, uh, migration uh, to take place. And as a, as a result, the flight uh, did not go. Uh, now, this uh, development recently has said that dozens of uh, migrants were detained awaiting a flight uh, to Rwanda. And this is what MPs were told. And they included women, victims of torture, and migrants who claim they're under 18, but whose age has been disputed by the Home Office of Shields, according to charity workers who are in contact with the individuals. Uh, they also told the Home Office Affairs Committee that the, uh, this is the charities, that the process of selecting which migrants would be sent to Rwanda appear to be very much random. The Home Office has previously said those eligible for removal to Rwanda are adults who have entered the UK legally, having passed through safe countries such as France, but this will apply to all 12,000 migrants who have uh, crossed the channel so far this year. Um, the chief executive of the Refugee Council, Anwar Solomon, said unaccompanied ch- uh, children were among those being detained pending removal to Rwanda. The fact that there are more than 50 individuals being detained would suggest a second flight to Rwanda is being planned within the next few weeks. 
because individuals can only be held in uh, immigration detention centers for a reasonable period of time. Uh, this is despite the risk of courts intervening to prevent the flight taking off following last month's failed attempt to remove seven migrants. In fact, there were more than seven migrants, but in the end, uh, it was the seven migrants that the European Court of Human Rights uh, uh, ruled upon because that's, uh, that was the number that was left after uh, removing other individuals, other migrants that were on that flight uh, from uh, the aeroplane. Seven were left in the end, and they were then also removed because of this injunction uh, from the European Court of Human Rights. So we'll see how that develops. As I said, the government is very much in a state of flux at the moment, so uh, we don't know how, whether um, that uh, particular very controversial initiative that has been condemned uh, in all quarters uh, and uh, in fact, the Church of England was uh, very much united in uh, condemning this and saying that it is against uh, uh, Christian principles to treat migrants in this way. But uh, And there were also criticism from other quarters as well. Uh, mind you, uh, it also has to be said that uh, there is a lot of support for something like this because uh, people feel that uh, there is... Uh, um, a need to stop the extent of uh, migration that is taking place and uh, something needs to be done and this uh, for them is a welcome uh, initiative uh, but then others argue that if we are a nation that wants to support uh, being a haven uh, a refuge for those who are tortured who are fleeing persecution, then uh, uh, we should stand up uh, to our responsibilities, which means that we should not uh, excuse ourselves uh, by uh, by dealing with our refugees in this uh, harsh manner, by uh, carting them off to another country and telling them to actually look for it and giving that particular country uh, um, a wad of money uh, to do what we should be doing. Uh, so arguments on both sides. If you have a view, then please do ring in uh, and talk to us and tell us what you think about uh, this and any of the other stories that we've covered. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number. Or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Now, moving on, uh, we have to now turn our attention to the two big stories that we're going to be dealing with. Uh, inflation is something that I'm sure everyone is aware of. It's uh, uh, gone up uh, to double digits, so we're told, uh, in the very near future. Um, and uh, so it's an, having an effect on food costs. So UK inflation rises at fastest rate for 40 years as food costs jump. That's the title of this particular item. And... Uh, uh, the gist of it is something we picked up from the BBC um, website. It says that uh, prices are continuing to rise at a faster rate for 40 years with uh, food costs, uh, particularly for bread, cereal and meat, climbing. UK inflation, uh, the rate at which prices rise, edged up to 9.1% in 12 months to May uh, from 9% in April. Uh, the Office for National Statistics said and um, uh, with uh, these kind of uh, food uh, rises, 
uh, especially for the items that were mentioned, bread, cereal, and meat. Um, um, it seems that prices are rising at the quickest rate in 40 years. Uh, according to the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, the rate for uh, uh, price growth in the UK increased somewhat uh, from 9% uh, to 9.1%, uh, as mentioned earlier. The main contributors to inflation are fuel and energy expenses, but according to the ONS, food expenditures have increased inflation even more. Uh, to deal with rising prices, uh, workers and unions are fighting for pay increases. So uh, that's inevitable if uh, people cannot make ends meet because uh, the prices uh, continue uh, to increase, then they would inevitably want uh, more money for their labor. So hence uh, what is happening and has happened recently. We've had the RMT strike, for instance, and that's going to be continuing. Uh, we've had barristers, criminal barristers, also going on the strike. Uh, they seem to be paid a pittance, uh, certainly those on the lower rungs of the legal profession. And uh, then there are also other um, uh, industries that are facing industrial action and all because, and all fueled, if I can use that, pardon the pun, if I can use that term, um, all fueled by the fact that uh, uh, the, there is this uh, underlying um, motivation for, for this kind of action that is being presented uh, as a result of uh, inflation. The government, however, has cautioned against employers offering significant pay rises uh, because it worries that this might lead to an inf in inflationary spiral uh, a la, la the 1970s in which businesses uh, raise wages and then pass the costs on to customers through higher prices. Uh, the Bank of England has warned that infl inflation will reach 11% this year. Uh, at 9.1%, it is currently at the highest level since March 1982. Uh, the rate of price growth is referred to as inflation, for instance, for bottle uh, costs. I mean, this is getting um, to the basics. Uh, so uh, just to understand inflation, the rate of price growth is referred to as, as inflation. If a bottle of milk costs one pound and goes up by 5p from a year ago, milk inflation is 5%. Uh, so that's just an indication of what, uh, what uh, inflation is and uh, what impact uh, or it, and the way that it makes an impact on the prices of our uh, foodstuffs. Uh, now, to discuss this, uh, we have uh, somebody who's become a regular on our show, uh, maths teacher, entrepreneur, and happiness coach, uh, Khalid Safir. Uh, he's, I understand, with us. Let me just press the right buttons to make sure that we can hear him. Aslamu Khalid. Uh, thank you for my coming on to the show. Walaikum salam, peace be upon you, Walid Saab. Oh, right, okay. Uh, yeah. First question to uh, kick us off. Uh, what's, uh, what causes uh, inflation? Well, um, generally speaking, interest would be causing inflation because what, what happens is you borrow money on interest so you, can, you get greater spending power and then everything rises in cost. So... Okay. And uh, how can we live and manage finance during inflation? Khalid, can you hear me? 
Assalamu alaikum Khalid I think we seem to have uh, dropped the line Oh Oh yes Oh he's back uh, Are you back uh, Khalid? My screen indicates that you're back But perhaps you're not Anyway So um, uh, We're talking about inflation We're talking about the fact that uh, uh, It is to do with uh, Uh, price rises uh, essentially and uh, what Khalid was uh, was explaining is that uh, is is the causes of inflation um, usually it is uh, very much uh, a case that uh, uh, it's high wages that uh, fuel inflation if there is a lot of money that uh, there's a lot of ability to spend more and more money and that would cause uh, inflation but the current state of the economy is such that it's wages that are cha- that are chasing inflation and um, what Khalid was also saying which we would like to explore a bit more is that uh, in with the uh, it's uh, interest rates that are the cause of uh, or interest that is the cause of inflation um I would like to press him uh, on that because infl- uh, interest rates have been very, very low uh, in recent times. So why this dramatic uh, state of affairs? Are you with us, uh, Khalid? Yes, sorry. Oh, so, well, my that... phone is terrible. It's oh, my fault. dear. Okay. I'm thinking um, of getting it changed. I know. It, does it, does it make you unhappy? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> not your joke. Your jokes are good. <laughs> good, good. You're very kind. Now, so tell me then. So you're saying that interest interests uh, the uh, fact that we have interest is uh, is a cause of inflation, but interest rates have been very very low in the in the last uh, few years. So why That's do we have true. such a dramatic uh, spate of uh, inflation despite that? Yes. So generally, it's interest that's causing the uh, rise in prices just about everything because it increases spending power. So, for example, houses in the 1950s, when my dad came here, um, it was £5,000 and the same house is worth a million. So now that's significant by itself over time. But you're right, recently... um, prices have risen really quickly and it's not really in the last month that especially the you know the average person is feeling it businesses have been feeling it for the last year or so um especially due to brexit so a lot of businesses have moved out of europe uh, anything coming into england or the uk is far far more expensive um so I have a friend who owns a farm and the house, the, sorry, the price of steel has doubled. So all these things that are affecting businesses will eventually affect us directly. Um, and then, of course, you've got this war in Ukraine where most of our wheat comes from, and not only from Ukraine, but also from Russia. Uh, so wheat, fuel, so many other essentials like oil, they all come from those two places or largely come from those two places so um, if we don't have access to them then there's going to be you know less of that product and therefore that product is going to cost more mm. so that's what's basically happening at the moment Brexit and Ukraine war on top of general mm. general inflation by interest okay 
And, uh, and is it uh, some people are also speculating that it's because of the printing of money by the Bank of England uh, that's uh, yes. poured in a lot of uh, yes, a lot of money, and therefore that's inevitable that it's going to cause inflation. Would that would you say that that's that's also a factor? Yes. So we've got so much debt um, that we can't pay that the only way they figured out how to pay it back was just to print loads of money. The more mm. money you spend, the less valuable it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, my colleague will have some questions for you as well. But uh, let me tell you, let me ask you this then. How can we live and manage uh, our finances during this period of inflation? What would you recommend? Right. Okay. So as your the amount of money you have reduces, um, Maybe our expectations of what we do um, reduces. So maybe let me explain that. Uh, when I lived in Middle East for a while, especially in the winter, um, I was shocked that people would wear jumpers and go in blankets, you know, and did actually get cold in the winter. Uh-huh. Um, and as a sort of, let's say, a Westerner, I have this expectation that I should always go to wear a T-shirt in my home, whatever the weather outside and I'll put the heating up. And so as our finances get stretched, um, maybe that's one, one of some of the things we should work towards, you know, wearing jumpers. It's actually much better for the environment as well. Instead of heating up the whole house, mm. just conserve your own uh, temperatures, you know, okay. your own heat. So more, be more prudent yeah. with our finances. Okay. Yep. That and so many other things. Um, mm. But yeah, I suppose that. And again, I would come back to stop buying things on interest. We often get our spending out of control if you're in the habit of you know, borrowing to buy stuff that you don't necessarily need. Um, I, I would go to all sorts of other limit, uh, uh, sort of places like, let's say, I would even fast. I personally fast regularly mm-hmm. uh, and that's become quite fashionable and why do I talk about fasting is because again in the West more than half our health issues come from obesity so we're eating more than we need to so we should have some maybe it'll be you know an option to consider controlling our eating habits we're eating more than we need to if we reduce that it wouldn't harm us if anything it would help us of course it doesn't help those people at the bottom where they're base barely eating at all but um that could help us a lot and um yeah uh, i even okay. consider growing your own food potatoes especially mm, mm, that's another yeah. angle yes if you have a if you have a garden uh, if you don't have a garden you can have also these uh, boxes can't you that you can put um uh, on uh, the balcony, if you have a balcony, or uh, even yeah, yes, yeah. okay, all right. No, uh, useful tips. Uh, thanks very much for that. Anyway, uh, Imam Toki will uh, be asking you a couple of questions as well. Assalamualaikum, Khalid Savira, regular contributor to Voice of Islam, especially Friday morning. Thank you Thank <laughs> once you again for for joining <laughs> us. Um, I wanted to ask you, as we are talking about inflation. How long do you think um, inflation can last if we look at this from a historical perspective? I I don't really see it as part of a pattern because this is cause this is a man-made uh, you know inflation where you know if we had peace with Russia 
and somehow undid Brexit and maybe stop spending millions or billions rather on weapons um, and spent it on welfare instead, uh, we could quite easily undo this, you know? So if we didn't have a war with Russia at the moment, then we could have wheat and wheat. Although even if you don't eat bread, there's so many uh, things that rely on wheat. There's Everything's connected. So, for example, wheat is fed to animals who, whose eggs we might eat, for example, like from chickens, etc. So it's just a, it's a man-made inflation, as much of most of inflation is anyway, but this is kind of the extreme version. And I wouldn't say it's a historical pattern. It's just, I would say, a lot of bad... Bad choices by us human beings. War and Brexit don't help either. Thank you. And and what is uh, Islam's teachings with uh, regards to economic and avoiding um, any of any sort of crisis? Right. So there's quite a few things that uh, should be borne in mind. First of all, uh, as I say, we shouldn't even be having uh, this inflation, because inflation be, should be reflecting on, you know, the resources of the country and what we're growing uh, hasn't gone up or down, so inflation shouldn't go up and down. The reason why I mentioned that is basically what we what we're suffering from is a unequal or poorly poor spread of the wealth of the nation. So the wealth of the nation basically is what we grow and what we create from the land essentially that's where it all comes from um so just to give you a demonstration in the uk the top one percent own the same amount of wealth as the rest of the 99 percent um, so that kind of demonstrates an un unequal spread of the wealth so how does islam manage that well the one of the five pillars of islam one of the five you know basic things that uh islam is founded on is the zakat, which is, I would describe as the poor tax, the tax to uh, the rich basically end up having to pay to help the poor. And it's a very clever tax because it taxes wealth rather than income. So any money that the rich are not spending, that they haven't spent for a year, they should, a tiny percentage of it, they should just give away. And why? I mean, that might sound really obvious, but first of all, it's a very clever tax. I haven't heard any tax that is as clever as that. Sorry about the background noise. Um, so that's one thing. And so, but why is that so important? Besides um, spreading the wealth, what it does, it speeds, it, it keeps the wealth circulating, just like. Uh, blood in a human being. If you don't have good uh, good blood circulation, that means you're going to be unhealthy. In the same way, if you don't have good what we call money velocity, you know, money going round the economy quickly enough, then that's going to be bad for the economy. And so, what this zakat or wealth tax, or even poor tax, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, does it keeps money circulating really fast? And uh, it, there was a great, a really interesting experiment. If you really want to research it, um, called the Wurgel experiment, or even the Wurgel um, 
miracle because it was a small town in Austria after the the Wall Street crash and the uh, and the inflation we had at that time, where they experimented by creating their own money and they implement implemented basically the Sagat system. Uh, where they had to tax anybody who didn't spend their money, and everybody kept spending their money, and uh, that town became really rich. Of course, the banks didn't like that, the big banks, the, and they shut this, that experiment down. So that's one of the key things, this fifth pillar of Islam. If you implement it, it really helps spread the wealth of the economy. And then its kind of opposite is interest. So it's interest, again, is forbidden in Islam and Judaism, and you could say Christianity if it followed its original teachings, uh, and that does the opposite of Zakat's interest, traps money into a few hands. In fact, it kind of has a, I'll describe as an opposite of a Robin Hood effect, where it robs the poor to give to the rich, because it's the poor are the ones who pay interest, and uh, the rich are the ones who receive money and interest. Like, if you put your money into the bank, you get interest, and the poor are the ones who need to borrow money, and they end up spending more money. You have to give more money back than you borrowed, and so they become even poorer, potentially. So um, there's quite a few things that Islam does, but I think one thing that is worth mentioning, the last thing I'll quickly mention, is this... um, right that Islam gives to every human being. It says basically that the the wealth of a country belongs to the people. And because of that, every single person in the Quran is mentioned that is owed food, water, clothing, and shelter. So if you've got these fundamentals, then people are protected. They can't be controlled by their bosses, or by being given too little money, basically being abused by a by the system, as it were, or by their wages. So there's quite a few protections and systems to, one, uh, avoiding inflation at all, and but also uh, another level, protecting the, the most vulnerable by giving them basic rights. That's my answer. Great. Uh, thank you so much, uh, uh, respected Khal Safir, uh, math teacher, interpreter, and happiness coach. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, th- uh, for some reason, uh, Brother Vlid, the, uh, the the happiness coach, that, that title sticks with me. Mm-hmm. Math teacher and interpreter, that doesn't I stick with <laughs> me. <laughs> we can just take happiness. Well, he's laughing, so he's, he's done his job. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Okay. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us. So that was a uh, respected Khaled Safir, um, you know, regular contributor to mm. Voice of Islam, especially uh, Friday mornings. Um, so as explained uh, by brother, uh, brother Khaled Safir, that if we look, um, if we study Islam, we, we see that zakat is... One of the f- is one of the fifth pillars um, of Islam, and uh, Muslim a Muslim is required that uh, they should give out of their wealth to look after the vulnerable and and poor people within the society. And zakat itself, um, that's what it does. Where people they give, where Muslims they give two point five percent of their wealth for the vulnerable members of the society. And if we study 
the Holy Quran. If we look at the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, we see that many a times, on many occasions, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he has instructed, um, he instructed the Muslims that they should give out of their wealth to look after the poor and the needy, uh, vulnerable members of the society, and one such uh, narration that I um, narrate quite often is that uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, at one place he mentioned that on the Day of Judgment there will be a group um, in front of that will uh, be answerable to God Almighty and God Almighty will say to them that uh, on earth I was hungry and I was thirsty and you did not quench my thirst and you did not give me food and those people that were being addressed will say that when would it be that you were thirsty or you were hungry and we didn't look after you and God Almighty will say that such and such person of mine on earth was hungry and they were thirsty and you did not uh, answer to their needs and if you had answered their needs it would have been as you have uh, as if you had you know given me water or you had given me food um, and in this narration, uh, it says that there will be another group of people uh, which will uh, stand before God Almighty. Um, and God Almighty will say that uh, you, when I was on earth, you gave me water and you gave me food. And again, the people being addressed, they would say that when was it that you, you know, we looked after you or we gave you food. And he said that such and such person of mine on earth, he was hungry or he was thirsty and you looked after their needs and, and you looked after them. And uh, so, so we see from this narration how dear it is uh, to God Almighty to look after the needy and the poor. And if if we do that, then that itself uh, will be looking after the vulnerable people within the society, and and the society itself, uh, those those people that are uh, in in a difficult situation, they they will be helped, and their positions will then be. Uh, change within the society as well uh, also uh, we see if we study the Holy Quran um, you'll find example of the of the Prophet Yusuf peace be upon him that even at that time um, the king at that time had a dream that uh, he saw he saw cows that were very healthy and, and different animals that were very healthy and then it, within that dream he also saw uh, that you know there was a state of famine and uh, he at first he did not understand this dream but Yusuf peace be upon him he interpreted this dream to mean that well the first seven years uh, in the land there will be you'll have fertile lands and there will be a lot of food for all but the seven years following after that you know there will be a huge famine um, you know, they, you won't get access to much meat or food. So he interpreted this dream to the king and he gave a solution that what we should do is that we should save beforehand, we should stockpile, and then we should use that stock for when the famine hits. Uh, so what we see is that even when we study the Holy Quran, it's found that... Uh, even in, in certain situations of crisis, uh, stockpiling has also been uh, used um, in, in such situations to help elevate the suffering or difficulty within the society. Now, just to close the segment, I wanted to read out a, an abstract from the writings of the second caliph of the 
एम दी मुस्लिम कम्यूटी हज़र मिर्जा बशीरुद्दीन महमूद अहमद ही वॉज़ द सेकेंड सक्सेसर ऑफ द प्रोमिस मसाई पीस पिपोनम एंड हिज बुक विच दिज लेक्चर विच ही डिलीवर्ड इन लाहौर एट द अहमदी हॉस्टो ऑन द ट्वेंटी सिक्स ऑफ फेबरी नाइनटीन फोर्टी फाइव ही इन दिस ही द मेन पर्पज ऑफ द लेक्चर वॉज टू शो दैट इज़ ओनली थ्रू द टीचिंग्स ऑफ इस्लाम दैट system of governance governance and economic can be established and uh, the lecture in light of the holy quran and the practice of the holy prophet peace be upon him elaborates the responsibilities of both the rulers and the ruled and leaves no doubt that the syst- the islamic system of gov- governance is fundamentally democratic based on free and fair elections in the best uh, sense of the word and i just wanted to read an abstract out from that and he says that the essence of the islamic economic system of islam lies in the appropriate combination of individuals freedom with state intervention and it allows state intervention to a certain extent but it also provides for an individual freedom and a proper balance between these two defines the economic the islamic economic system individuals freedom is granted to enable persons to build up assets and spend them voluntarily in order to gain the spiritual benefits in the life to come and state intervention on the other hand is provided in order to protect the poor from economic exploitation by the wealthy and the state intervention is deemed essential for putting in place certain safeguards against harming the weaker sections of the society while individuals uh, freedom is deemed essential for a healthy competition among individuals for enabling them to make provisions for the life hereafter you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed wasbillahi minash shaitan rajim bismillahir rahmanir rahim Uh, welcome back to Voice of Islam. You are listening to myself, Tukira Mithanvir, and Brother Valid here from the studio of Voice of Islam. And we're just finishing off our first segment. We are discussing the topic: UK inflation rises at the fastest rate for 40 years as food costs jump. And for this particular segment, we did have uh, respected Khalid Safir, and uh, he tackled this. particular topic and he spoke uh on you know what's causing the inflation and he gave some ways and you know some provided some solutions and mentioned what islam says with regards to the economic system as well and for the islamic uh, analysis um we're just closing this particular segment by reading out a quote from the second caliph of the amdi muslim community hazrat mirza bashiruddin mahmud ahmed Uh, may God Almighty be pleased with him. And uh, this from his lecture, which he delivered in Lahore at the Amdiya Hostel on the twenty-sixth of February, nineteen forty-five. And highlighting on this particular particular subject, um, I was reading the quote out. So um, I'll just be finishing. The, I'll just be uh, finishing the quote. Um, so His Holiness, he further says. that the state intervention is deemed essential for putting in place certain safeguards against harming the weaker sections of society while individual freedom is deemed essential for a healthy competition among individuals for enabling them to make provisions for the life hereafter 
individuals are given full opportunity to voluntarily serve humanity and earn merit in the life hereafter. And individual freedom thus opens up endless possibilities of progress through the force of healthy competition. And at the same time, Judas state intervention is provided so that the economic system is not based on brutality and injustice and hinderness to economic progress of any section of society are avoided. And it should now be easier to understand that religious uh, religions that believe in the hereafter in general and Islam in particular do not view the issue in simple economic terms but from a religious and moral and economic perspective religion does not seek a pure purely economic solution because such a solution might interfere with the moral and religious aspects of life which would be unacceptable a non-believer is of course free to view economic problems in in isolation but a religious person should not judge an economic system from purely an economic perspective and he would demand an economic system that also respects his moral and religious requirements so that was just a quote which i read out from uh, from an address that uh, the second caliph which he delivered uh, in Lahore at the MD Hostel on 26th of February 1945. So I will now pass the mic on to Brother Vili to start us with the second segment. Right, thank you very much for that. Um, the second segment, well, as mentioned at the top of the program, is uh, going to be honing on, on this particular story about the $1 million challenge. Uh, it's the uh, re- uh, challenge regarding uh, the Turin Shroud. If the Turin Shroud is a forgery, show how it was done and you can claim your one million dollars uh, and um, the gist of this story i suppose we probably picked it up on one of the websites uh, but the gist is that uh, uh, this is uh, one of the most eagerly awaited scientific announcements uh, and uh, p- uh, it pitted the world of faith against the world of rational thought under the glare of the media so when a cutting-edge carbon-14 test found that the shower of Turin was a forgery. It seemed like the final chapter for a relic that had been revered for centuries as a cloth in which Christ's body had been wrapped when he supposedly rose from the dead at the first Easter almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, the mysterious and captivating shroud of Turin is once again uh, very much the focus of attention. The most recent uh, headlines uh, focus on studies purporting uh, the uh, shroud to be fake. Uh, forensic anthropologists Matteo Borini and chemist Luigi uh, Garlaschelli uh, based their experiment on the blood stain patterns used to investigate crime scenes. While the experts believe they have finally resolved the controversial shroud mystery with their expertise in forensics, the question is whether they are correct in claiming that the shroud is a fake. Shroud experts believe that they are wrong in declaring the shroud to be fake. Indeed, they believe the experiment to be highly flawed. Dr. Alfonso Sanchez uh, Hermosilla Uh, speaking as both a forensic anthropologist and a physician on the research team of the Spanish 
syndrology center says that neither of the investigators have the scientific qualifications to speak on it as the pair does not have experience in human blood stains. Moreover, neither Borini and Carla Shelley have ever had access to the original Shroud of Turin. In fact, neither has even seen it in person. The authenticity of the Shroud of Turin, believed to be the burial cloth of Jesus, peace be upon him, has been debated for decades. Many conferences and events on the Shroud of uh, Turin uh, have taken place around the world. One of them was organized by the Ahmadi Muslim community, I think it was in 1978, where the head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, the then head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Mr. Nasser Ahmed, uh, uh, made the uh, keynote speech. Uh, so many conferences have been had, uh, held. 218, or 2018, marks the 40th anniversary since the first ever scientific examination of, of the Shroud by uh, by the organiz organization called STIRP. Uh, in 1978, as mentioned, um, w one of the reasons for the, uh, the conference I was uh, uh, alluding to earlier was uh, the fact that it happened in 1978 is that uh, in that year, the Shroud of Turin Research Project, this is what STIRP stands for, conducted the first ever scientific examination on the on on the shroud. Now, 40 years later, we celebrate that anniversary and uh, take a look at uh, the progress that has been made. The Turin Shroud exhibited, hosted by the Review of Religions, along with the Shroud academics and experts from across the globe, will discuss how much closer we are to discovering the truth about the shroud. Uh, during the three days of the exhibition, visitors will have a chance to speak to shroud experts from the United States, uh, Italy, and Spain. In addition, um, building on the success of the 2015, 2016, and 2017 exhibitions, the Review of Religions is uh, pleased to host once again a life-size replica of the Turin Shroud and the Tomb of Jesus, and a brand new feature added to the exhibition on Mary, Mother of Jesus, peace be upon him. Uh, a journey uh, telling the story of the young, innocent Mary, peace be upon her, uh, may Allah be pleased with her, uh, oblivious to the world, focused only in the worship of God, only uh, to suddenly be told that she was with a child. And while the news of her pregnancy is usually a joyous occasion, uh, Mary, be Allah be uh, pleased with her, uh, her case was different. She was alone and frightened. Uh, what did she do? Where did she go? How did Mary endure the days ahead of her? Discover the facts and explore how Mary eventually became one of the most respected and revered women to be known in the history uh, of the world. The exhibition will also feature pictures of the visit of Hazrat Mirza Masroon, the current uh, caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, um, uh, to the Shroud of Turin exhibit, exhibit in, uh, in Italy. Uh, on 20th April 2010, becoming the first uh, caliph to observe the shroud in person. Uh, now we have uh, um, certain, I, I think we've got an expert who will be joining us, but we certainly have um, uh, also uh, clips of people that we talked to earlier. Uh, perhaps yes. we can share them? Which, yes. Which one? Arab Khan is, yes. is ready? Right. So. Uh, we spoke to Araf Khan. Araf Khan 
I will uh, assume he's an expert, but we'll find out what uh, he is in this particular clip. So we have with us today respected Arif Khan, and you are a deputy editor of Christianity section for Review of Religions, and you are also a biblical researcher. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for joining us uh, at the Voice of Islam radio station. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, now, we're discussing a very interesting topic on the Turin Shroud. And I wanted to ask you um, more on that. And my first question, I wanted to ask you, what is so special about this image on the Turin Shroud, if you can please explain? Yes, so the, the real mystery of the Shroud of Turin is how did the image form? So to just explain what the the, the Turin Shroud is, it's a it's a cloth, it's a sort of four meter length long cloth, and it has the image of what appears to be a crucified man, but the image itself is very, very faint. It's not easily visible, it's, you have to be a certain distance away, and it's a very small darkening, a very small amount of darkening of the cloth, the linen cloth, that actually forms this image. And one of the, the most interesting or strangest characteristics about the, the image itself is that it's actually a negative. So um, what we mean by that is the lights and the darks of the image are actually reversed. So areas that normally would be the lighter areas are actually darker and the darker areas are lighter. Um, and it wasn't until you know, the invention of photography when someone actually took a photograph of the image of the shroud and they looked at the negative plate, that is the black and white image, that suddenly the image was much clearer um, and they were able to see so much detail around the shroud. So actually interest in the shroud really increased in the last hundred years really, ever since that first photo was taken just around the turn of the, the, the 19th century. So it's got some very unusual uh, peculiarities and the real mystery is how was that image formed? It's still a mystery in terms of the actual mechanics by, that caused the image in the first place. And can we say that uh, this is the shroud which was used on uh, Jesus, peace be upon him, himself? You know, how can we say that this shroud uh, was not proved a forgery by the carbon dating in 1988? So the first question is, how do we know this is the shroud belonging to Prophet Jesus? And that is a very good question. What we can tell from the shroud, it appears to be a crucifixion, which we know only took place in a certain area of the world under the Roman Empire under a certain period of time. We, it looks like as well that there's certain aspects of the body of the image of the shroud that suggest the person who was wrapped in this cloth had undergone certain things. So we know the Romans crucified a lot of people, but in this shroud there's elements of a crown, what appears to be a mark from a crown of thorns. The, the Gospels talk about Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, having a crown of thorns placed on his head. So there's, there's blood stains that are unusual and that look like they could have been caused by that. There is also, uh, you know, the a side wound and a blood flow that looks like it came from a wound to the side. And that also matches exactly what the Gospels say in terms of the descriptions of what took place at the crucifixion. And I guess the other main evidence we have is that it, this cloth has been preserved and reserved uh, you know, over the centuries. It has survived. It's been kept as a special cloth. So we have hints that this is the original cloth, um, but we cannot say for certain. You know, There's no way we can be absolutely sure, but we have a lot of circumstantial evidence. About the carbon dating, that's a very good question. So there was a lot of interest around the shroud around 1988 when the first ever carbon dating, and only carbon dating so far, took place on the shroud 
when the results of that common dating came out, they talked about the shroud dating to between the uh, 1260 to 1390 was the age range. So about, you know, 1200 to 1300, which is, would make it absolutely a forgery. So when that came out, that caused a lot of controversy. There was a lot of press coverage. And many people after that moment stopped paying any interest in the shroud. As far as they were concerned, it had been proved a fake. Um, but there were a lot of others who said there's so much more evidence that suggests it's much older. You know, what could possibly have happened? Um, it's a debated topic, like almost everything with the shroud. But more recent evidence, particularly around 2005, suggested that the to do the carbon dating, they just took a sample from one corner of the shroud. And now it looks like that that corner had been repaired in more recent times. So it looks like that actually that was a very bad choice. You can understand why they chose a corner. They didn't want to damage the cloth and carbon dating destroys the sample when you do it. So they took just one corner uh, you know, from the shroud and they dated it. But actually it looks like that was a bad choice. It wasn't representative of the rest of the cloth. And that's what made the carbon dating result you know, so, so wrong or uh, you know, skewed the results of those who believe it's genuine. And there's been a few documentaries, a very recent one as well, made by a filmmaker called David Rolfe that focuses really around the, the carbon dating and tries to highlight and show that, you know, this dating is incorrect. And actually this year, just a few weeks ago, David Rolfe issued a challenge to, of, you know, of a million pounds to anyone who is able to prove that the shroud is a fake. So, you know, that's a, it's still a hotly debated topic. No, no, that's very interesting, um, Aris. Also, how can we prove that Jesus, um, he survived the crucifixion from this uh, relic? So that's a very interesting question because, you know, for Muslims uh, who believe that Jesus survived the crucifixion, you know, this is, you know, this presents maybe a key piece of evidence. Uh, finally, now we're not debating about what this scripture said or what that scripture said. We actually have potentially a cloth that in some ways we may be able to test and prove something. But unfortunately, we find there's a lot of controversy here as well. So to be fair and, and balanced in this, I would say that there are arguments on both sides of this. So there are some researchers who are you know, not Muslim who have looked at this cloth and have concluded that based on the amount of blood on the cloth and certain other aspects, the fact that there's no evidence of the body having decayed, they believe that this proves that whoever was wrapped in this cloth was actually still alive. Um, having said that, there have been other notable experts in pathology who have looked at the same evidence of the shroud and said, due to their own conclusions for other reasons, looking at the same evidence, they believe the shroud shows that the person wrapped had died. So it's interesting, you know, it's, it doesn't settle the debate and more, uh, more evidence is, is always coming out. Um, the one challenge we have is we've not been able to examine the shroud again. There was only one scientific examination in 1978. A lot of the research done after that was based purely on what was done in 1978. Since 1978, no further permission has been given for any team to actually do a further examination or do more modern tests. So we're relying on the data from a long time ago, um, but it's still hotly debated. There's one um, uh, doctor called Dr. Miguel Lorente he is a doctor. He has a doctorate in medicine. He's a specialist, specialist in surgery, and he's a forensic doctor by profession. He's a lecturer at the University of Granada. Now, he wrote a paper and presented at a conference in uh, 2008, and his topic was basically saying 
basically arguing that the Shroud of Turin shows no signs that the Jesus, peace be upon him, died and actually shows some signs that he survived. Now, he, this person has uh, openly said that he is a Christian as well. So you'll see there's a range of different views. Unfortunately, there's not a simple single answer. This hasn't helped solve the argument and end the argument. It's actually led to more viewpoints and more discussion. And there are a range of views. Every, every few years, you will get uh, independent people who, who, are draw, who look at this evidence and say he survived. But there are also people who are continually saying, you know, this is actually proof of death. Um, so it's still an open debated topic. Very interesting. And and just lastly, uh, Brother Aris, can you tell us about uh, the Sodarium of Ovido and how is this linked with the Turin Shroud? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. So there's there's this cluster, everyone, not everyone, but more people have heard about the Shroud of Turin. It's, it's, the images are quite famous. But there is also another cloth. So at the time in the gospel stories, it talks about two cloths being present in the cave when the you know people came to see jesus and they said oh he's risen people you know they had the view that there were actually two different types of linen or more than one cloth and in terms of uh, jewish burial customs they would they would wrap the body but they would also cover when they were taking the body down from the cross they would also put a cloth around the head or around the the, the face of the cloth as well so there is a cloth in, in Oviedo in Spain, in, in a church there, that has been preserved and is described as, as uh, you know, the tradition is that this was the face cloth that covered the face of Jesus, peace be upon him, when he was on the cross. Now, people didn't really give it much um, attention because it didn't contain an image like the shroud does. But what they were able to find more recently in the last few decades is if you analyze the blood flows on the cloth of Oviedo and you look at the blood flows on the shroud, some researchers have found over 150 points of similarity that they say shows that both of these cloths covered the same body. Now, now why is that useful? Number one, it shows that actually the fact that we have two cloths now and they match makes it more likely that this is a genuine cloth of Prophet Jesus. But also, if you believe in the carbon dating, which says that the shroud is actually much more recent and is a fake, well, look, that doesn't make sense now because the cloth of Oviedo, we know to have been dated much earlier, maybe in the 6th, 7th century at least. We have documented evidence that it existed. So it's a challenge. You know, it provides evidence that actually maybe this, uh, you know, this cloth is genuine. Um, and it, you know, the, the Oviedo cloth is like corroborating evidence, really, that helps support the shroud. Fantastic. Uh, respected Arif Khan, thank you so much for um, taking the time out and sharing your thought on this uh, particular subject. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Right, that was uh, Arif Khan, an expert on this uh, particular relic. Uh, we also spoke to Robert Rucker. Uh, he's a graduate of Michigan University and obtained professional engineering uh, certification in nuclear mechanical engineering um, and has been uh, researching promoting the Shard of Treven since uh, uh, 2014. And this is what he had to say. Good morning, Bob. I'm very happy to have you as a guest on the Voice of Islam Breakfast Show this morning. And uh, if you'd like, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career before your research oh, yes, uh, at uh, Turin? Uh, yes, uh, my, my career. I became interested in uh, uh, nuclear uh, physics uh, very early in life and eventually uh, earned a, a degree in nuclear engineering from the University of Michigan, a master's degree in science uh, from the University of Michigan. And then I worked in the nuclear industry for 38 years, uh, running nuclear analysis computer software 
to calculate neutron distributions in nuclear reactors uh, and uh, uh, fuel uh, production, sa safety issues for fuel production. I also was involved in statistical analysis of measurement data for uh, nuclear material inventories. So that, that was a, a lot of experience uh, so that when I exited from the uh, nuclear industry, then I applied all of that, those skills in running uh, nuclear analysis software and statistical analysis, I applied it all to the analysis of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, specifically to solve the uh, carbon dating problem for the shroud because there was so much evidence that it, it, it seemed to date from the uh, first century, uh, yet the carbon dating uh, gave it a date of uh, 1260 to 1390. And uh, uh, I read the uh, uh, information on that experiment uh, uh, when it came out in uh, 1989 or a couple of years afterwards. And I thought I knew the answer, uh, why, why it dated uh, to the Middle Ages, yet was actually from the first century. And so I, I set up a nuclear analysis computer calculation modeling a human body wrapped in a linen cloth in, in a limestone tomb as it would have been designed in first century Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, so I ran the calculation uh, emitting neutrons homogeneously or, or uniformly throughout the body. Uh, and uh, the, the results of my calculations were consistent with the three different evidences from the experiment. That is the, the date, the slope of the data, and the distribution of the uh, uh, 16 values for the subsamples, uh, which is all quite amazing so that that indicated to me that I was making a correct assumption in assuming that there were neutrons being emitted from the body. And is that a normal so, thing, that neutrons are emitted from a dead body? Oh, no, neutron, no, not, not at all. Now, uh, of course, uh, a human body is made up of uh, uh, proteins, which, which are made of uh, 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 molecules, which are, which are made of atoms, and all the atoms are made of uh, neutrons and protons in the nucleus, plus uh, which are then surrounded by uh, electrons circling the nucleus. So that our, our human bodies are made of uh, neutrons, protons, and electrons, but uh, you would not expect there to be uh, an emission of any of these particles in any significant amount from, from a human body, whether, whether dead or alive. Uh, it just doesn't happen. So that what we're talking about here is something that is uh, outside of our current understanding of the laws of physics. But but in in making those calculations and those assumptions of neutrons being emitted from the body, it gave the right data that agreed with the experiments. So that uh, in every sense, it seemed like I was doing something right in in doing this. Just because it's not known doesn't mean it's not possible, is it? Does it? Well, well, yes. I mean, there's, there's, you know, a sense that uh, our current understanding of the laws of physics, we never know whether that is complete, uh, and, and that the history of science has always been one of new discovery, 
that at no point in time have we known everything, so that there's always new things to discover. Uh, and what so was that it that made you interested it, in the shroud? Uh, it, it was it was uh, <clears throat> when I was probably 12 or 13 years old, which is a long time ago now. I'm about 73, uh, but uh, so so that'd be about 60 years ago. I saw a little tiny uh, picture about uh, about three centimeters high uh, in a magazine that came out with the Sunday paper, and it was. Uh, picture of the face from the shroud and there was a very uh, small paragraph just about three or four sentences long and at the end of the, that paragraph it said some people believe the shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Jesus and when I read that I thought I'd never heard of it uh, and if, if that was true that if this was the burial cloth of Jesus then it would be so famous and so well known that everyone would know about it, and yet I'd never heard of it. So I thought this can't be true. But but then you know as, I never forgot that. And my wife, my future wife, saw it. She was in San Diego at the time I growing up, and I was in in uh, Michigan at the time, uh, and uh, she saw it as well. But uh, you know a little bit later, I thought, well, I need to be a little bit more open-minded than that on it, uh, and so. I happened to see a, a book uh, in the bookstore on the subject. It was just a small book, about 90 pages long. And so I bought it, and I read it, and it was, it was so amazing that I thought, well, it, it's based upon this evidence, it certainly does seem like it's a uh, and So I never forgot that. Uh, and so then in 1978, there was 26 American scientists were invited to go to Turin, Italy, where the shroud is located, uh, and they had an exhibition in 1978. And after the exhibition, which which went on for maybe two months or so, uh, they they allowed 26 American scientists to go to Turin to do experiments on this piece of cloth, so long as they didn't damage it. It'd be non-destructive testing. So they, they tested it for five days, 24 hours a day. They had a whole series of experiments that uh, lined up. They took $2.5 million worth of equipment with them, uh, and they worked in three shifts. They were very serious about it. They had planned this for years, uh, two or three years, of, of this long sequence of experiments. And the main objective was to determine how the images were formed because on this piece of cloth, there was the front image of a crucified man and a back image of a crucified man. Uh, and so you normally think, well, it's, it's a painting of some sort. So they, they thought, a lot of them thought that when they went there, they'd be very able to very quickly determine that this was due to pigment, due to painting. And then they would just stop the experiments and they'd go out to restaurants and have a nice time visiting museums and tour in Italy. But when they got there and they looked at it, and they, they, they looked at it carefully with high-powered microscopes and they could not find any pigment on it you know, because the main objective was to determine what formed the image. So they couldn't find any pigment, that there was no carrier to carry the pigment, there was no brush strokes, there was no... Uh, 
a stiffening of the cloth that would be due to paint. There was no cracking uh, along the fold line. So all these different things would happen if, if it was pigment uh, due to painting, dye, or stain. But it wasn't, evidently. And so they thought, what else could it be? Well, so someone su suggested, well, may maybe it's a scorch, like an iron uh, le left on a sheet too long. It, it causes a darkening, a, a light tan color. So uh, what they did, there's a certain test for this. They turned out all the lights, uh, and they came up with a black light emitting ultraviolet light. Uh, and if it was a scorch, then it would fluoresce. Now, what that means is that it would absorb the, the, the darkening, uh, would absorb the higher energy ultraviolet light and then re-emit it at a lower energy that our eyes could see. But the, the image didn't fluoresce, so it was not a scorch. Uh, and then they thought, well, maybe it's some kind of a photograph. But the interesting thing about this is that they couldn't detect any uh, light-sensitive chemicals on, on the cloth uh, and, the, and the fact that uh, there was three-dimensional information in the two-dimensional image on the shroud, which is very strange because no painting and no photograph contains three-dimensional information. So it was just bizarre. It was very strange. They'd never seen this before. Uh, and they also quickly found out that the, the discoloration on the fibers that made the image was so localized, it wasn't, wasn't spread out, so that uh, it was not due to any liquid absorbing into the cloth. Uh, that's called capillarity, where, the, where a liquid is absorbed into the cloth. But they could detect no capillarity. So that, that indicated that it was not due to any liquid, such as an acid uh, or, or any kind of chemical in, in uh, water, uh, dissolved in water, for example. So they excluded every possibility that they could think of. Uh, and so when the five days of testing was over, they, they came be before the news media because this, this was a, a very well-known cloth at the time, and a lot of people believed that it was authentic, uh, and yet, so they, they had to come before the news media, and they announced all, the results of all these testing could not determine how the images were formed. But I think we know now how it was formed ba based upon just further thinking. It was formed by radiation emitted from the body. That's why it tested negative to pigment, scorch, uh, liquid, and photography, because it was none of those. It was evidently due to radiation emitted from the body. Now, th this gets into my hypothesis uh, uh, called a vertically collimated radiation burst hypothesis. Uh, uh, I, I use an acronym, uh, VCRB hypothesis, vertically collimated radiation burst hypothesis, where the radiation has to be vertically uh, emitted from the body, uh, both vertically up uh, to form the front image on the body and vertically down uh, 
to form the back image that was on the cloth below the body. You see, because the, the, the front image that was on the cloth above the body is actually a vertical projection from the body. If you just think about it geometrically, it's a vertical projection upward from the body. And, and the image that was on the back cloth uh, below the body is a vertical projection downward from the body. Uh, and, and so there was something that was being transferred from the body to the cloth. And uh, there, there's actually three different requirements to form the image. Uh, number one is that you have to have a mechanism to discolor the fibers. Number two, you have to have energy to drive the discoloration mechanism. And number three, that most people don't realize, is that you have to have information uh, transferred to the cloth uh, that, that this information defines the form of a crucified man, both front and back images. And it has to be deposited on the cloth to determine which fibers are discolored and the length of that discoloration uh, on, on, the, uh, on the cloth. If you don't have that information controlling the discoloration mechanism, then all you get is a general blurring. So that, that information was only inherent to the body. So that information is being carried uh, on the radiation from the body to the cloth. So that's why it has to be uh, radiation coming from the body. A and the, in the, the fascinating thing about this is, is that the fibers, the diameter of these fibers, it, the cloth was made of linen, and the fibers from the uh, flax plant that, that are used to make linen, those fibers are about one-fifth the diameter of a human hair, very small, uh, so that uh, the scientific measurement of that would be about 15 to 20 micrometers or microns. But the discoloration is less than 0.2 microns. So it, it's only the outer 2 or 3% of the radius of the fiber that's discolored. The inside of the fiber isn't discolored. It's only this outer 2 or 3% of the radius. So how does that happen? Well, it, it, the only thing that I could think of was that just scientifically, uh, you have to think scientifically and follow the evidence where it leads. You can't approach uh, the evidence uh, with a preconceived idea of what's allowed. You have to simply follow the evidence where it leads um, so that you eliminate presuppositions in your thinking so that when you're thinking scientifically, you have to think without presuppositions so that uh, w when you realize that, that the discoloration is only on the outer 2 or 3% of the fiber, you have to ask the question, what would cause that? And scientifically, the only thing that I could think of that would cause that uh, would be heat 
deposited, but only in that outer 2 or 3% of the fiber radius. Uh, and, and it has to be deposited very rapidly so that the heat doesn't spread uh, into a larger uh, over a larger radius. So this radiation from the body has to be emitted extremely rapidly. And to deposit the heat extremely rapidly in, in just this outer 2 or 3% of the fiber radius. Well, and then you have to ask the question, well, what w could do that uh, that would deposit the heat in just that outer 2% 2 per two of the fiber radius? The only thing that I could think of was that, uh, give you a little bit of background here, it's well known that in alternating current in a wire, in a conductor, that alternating current, due to electromagnetic effects, the electrons are traveling just on the outer circumference of the conductor, the copper wire in this case, uh, and that as the frequency of the alternating current increases, the thickness uh, of where the electrons are flowing in the conductor decreases. So that, in other words, if you had a, a copper wire that's only this, the diameter of a linen fiber, if the alternating current had a high enough frequency of the electrons going back and forth, then the, the electron current and thus the heat uh, deposition would only occur in the outer 2% of that uh, uh, radius. Uh, and so going with that, then, you have to ask the next question. Well, what would cause that? So, uh, and the only thing that I could think of, so again, I'm, I'm just following the evidence where it leads. The only thing that I th could think of that would cause this extremely high-frequency alternating current in the fibers was a burst of charged particle radiation from the body that was oscillating between vertically up and vertically down directions. Well, the, the, Im the front image and the back image, you know, one being above the body and the other being below the body, were of the same nature. They were similar in, in appearance. So that if you had this radiation burst alternating between vertically up and vertically down, it would explain why the images were of the same nature. Uh, and so everything was fitting together uh, at, at this point in, in the concept. Now, I go into all of this uh, on my YouTube video. So I made, uh, about two and a half months ago, I put a video uh, on YouTube. It's about 51 minutes long, where I, I go into all of this information uh, and this hypothesis of mine. Uh, and uh, you can find it if you go to YouTube put in Shroud of Turin Hypothesis. Now, that's the first word in the title that I give it. The title is Hypothesis to Explain the Main Mysteries of the Shroud of Turin. And this hypothesis uh, of a, an extremely brief, extremely intense burst of radiation from the body explains the three main mysteries 
or the shroud of Turin. It explains how the image was formed by charged particles in the radiation. It explains how the carbon date was shifted from the first century to the range of 1260 to 1390 by neutrons in the radiation burst. And it explains the blood that would have dried on the body was thrust off the body and onto the cloth because as these particles exited the body, the, the momentum in the particles, when the, when the particles hit the blood, the dried blood on the body, they would have uh, accelerated the blood away from the body and onto the cloth. So it explains the three main mysteries of the Shroud of Turin, image formation, carbon dating, and the blood on the Shroud. Well, that was Robert uh, Rutter. He seems to have uh, resolved many of the issues uh, relating to the quiz that are raised uh, on this particular relic of the Shroud of Turin. Uh, I apologize for the uh, quality of the sound. I think that there was something lacking there, but... Uh, we hope that uh, listeners were able to get the gist of what he was saying. We're soon going to be joined by Pam Moon. Pam Moon, uh, if I can just uh, very quickly go through who she is. She is uh, somebody who is very much an expert uh, of the uh, Trout of Turin, a researcher, uh, and uh, uh, who uses uh, the replica as a visual aid to tell the story of the of the crucifixion, she, so apparently she does use a replica of the of the relic uh, to explain uh, her take on this. So we'll be joining. We've uh, just been joined by her. I'm just making sure I press the right button. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Pam. <coughs> Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Oh, good. I'm glad you think so. Uh, tell us, uh, what is the Shard of Turin as far as you're concerned? Okay. Well, it's a 4.4 metre long linen cloth containing the image of the front and the back of a crucified man. Mm-hmm. And for those listening, Google it and have a look at the image. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there are blood flows that show wounds to the hands and the feet. Mm-hmm. And a crown of thorns and a spear wound, all consistent with what the New Testament records about the crucifixion of Jesus. Right. And where is this uh, piece of cloth located? Well, it's in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin, in mm-hmm. North Italy. Been there for centuries now. It's hardly ever on display, but I believe that your colleague saw it in 2010. Yeah, you're quite right. As I mentioned that earlier in the programme. Thank, yes. Thank you for reminding us again. Yes. Um, my colleague will be asking a few questions, but before he does that, let me just ask you this last one. What evidence is there uh, that this is genuine, uh, as you describe, the same cloth that uh, perhaps uh, refer- refers to uh, Jesus in the New Testament? Okay, well, it's, it's often called the fifth gospel because it's just so accurate to what the Bible teaches about uh, Jesus' crucifixion. Mm-hmm. But archaeological discoveries, including one in Cambridge this year, show that it's actually quite accurate to crucifixion, unlike um, art, but also um, J- Barry Schwartz has been at the JALSA for five years, and he was the um, photographer for the science that was done on the shroud in 1978. And uh, they spent years looking at that data and writing it up in peer-reviewed papers. And basically, they can't tell you what creates the image on the shroud. It's it's a mystery. 
it isn't paint, it isn't scorch, it isn't photograph, it isn't a dye. Um, it probably isn't a natural phenomenon because um, there, it's unique. There isn't anything else like it on Earth. And none of that science contradicts the idea that it is the burial cloth of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, my colleague here uh, is asking you a few questions, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, good morning, Pam. Thank you for good morning. Thank you for joining us. Always great to uh, hear from you. Um, oh, it's a pleasure. I, I mean, you you've given the uh, evidence on how it could be the Turin shroud, but it, what evidence also is there for critics who say that well, the shroud is a forgery? Well, what what uh, argument yeah. do they give? Well, I mean, most of that's generated by a radiocarbon date that was done in 1988, which suggests the shroud was created between 1260 and 1390. But, you know, radiocarbon date is only ever as good as the sample tested. And we now know that the sample used was stitched, repaired and dyed, so it was full of modern carbon. Now, two speakers at the JALSA have called the radiocarbon date into question. Emanuela Marinelli has shown in a paper with Tristan Casabianca that the statistical analysis of the raw data of the carbon date was flawed. And David Rolfe has this year challenged the British Museum, who coordinated the radiocarbon date, to recreate the shroud. If it's something made by an artist in the Middle Ages, it should be easy to make one today. And he's put up this million-dollar challenge to the British Museum, which has so far been declined. And, you know, really that just isn't good enough. They say it's medieval, so they should either back that up by making one and showing how easy it is, or, of course, by admitting that they made a mistake. Thank you. And and can you also explain some of the current research which is also being yeah. done on this? I mean, I mean, there's so much research, it's hard to know where to start. So um, people have looked at different na- dating methods, like uh, Ray Rogers and Julia Fanti, and these methods suggest that the material of the shroud is much older than the Middle Ages. But image formation is another huge area. The, the, the image only penetrates the surface of the cloth, so a tenth of the dia- diameter of a hair on your head. It's measured in nanometers. And Paolo de Lasso, who's currently head of science in Turin, experimented with ultraviolet lasers to create fibers with similar surface properties. Now he suggests it's created by flashes of light which lasts for 40 billionth of a second. Um, so is the image created by light or re- radiation? What makes the image? And personally, I'm interested in looking at um, the history of the Shroud before 1260. I believe, following Ian Wilson, that it was called the Holy Mandelian, and it was in Constantinople, now Istanbul. Um, I think there's evidence of uh, the Shroud being carried through the streets of Constantinople in an old image that was misclassified. And uh, it's being protected by an army um, who were the Kievan Rus, an army from Kiev, which is particularly significant today with the war in Ukraine and Russia. Thank you. And just lastly, Pam, if you can also explain yeah. the theological significance of the Turin Shroud. Okay, well, first of all, if it's genuine, it's the face of Jesus, uh, the prophet Esau, peace be upon him. Now, as a Christian, it helps confirm my faith in the gospel message of mm. the death and resurrection of Jesus. Ask, what about questions like, is there life after death? Um, what might that look like? But you know, it's got so much to teach about. A teacher. There's no skin tone on the image. We don't know the color of his hair or his skin. This is a universal image and it can't be used 
for any racist agenda. But also, you know, the, the depth and the nature of the suffering identifies with the suffering of millions of people today. You know, this isn't a king wrapped in gold. Um, this is, a, 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 for Christians, a king who's wrapped in humble linen. You know, he hasn't got rubies and crowns on his head. He has a crown of thorns. He teaches a way of love, of humility, and he challenges us to live a way of peace and, and non-violence. Fantastic, Pam, and thank you so much for taking your time out and sharing your thank expertise you. on this uh, particular subject. Uh, will you? Will thank we you. be seeing you for Jalsa this year? Uh, I, I would love to come. Is it, is it on? <laughs> Uh, Yes, it it will be happening, uh, but uh, I I think it will be with uh, certain restrictions, um, so I'm not too sure, um, but uh, but we always look forward to the team uh, whenever they are there um, for for the exhibition, so that's always wonderful. I mean, we've just just loved your hospitality and your kindness and your openness, and and, I mean, Lentil curry and chapatis, what <laughs> more? <laughs> yes, uh, the, the, the chapatis are cooked on site. On the, I know, yeah. I know. Mm. I dream about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. so I have a wonderful, have a wonderful childhood, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure if it's possible, an invitation will be extended to you as well. Oh, so, wow. yeah, great. yeah. So you can, you don't need to dream anymore. It'll be realized soon. <laughs> okay. Thank Brilliant. you very much. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. That's the number to call if you do want to get in touch with us. Um, so we've just heard from uh, Pam Moon, um, and uh, she is um, she is the researcher. Uh, one of the researchers for the Turing Shroud um, as one of the only few existing around the world and the Shroud exhibits is displayed by Pam Moon, a Shroud expert who uses the replica as a visual aid to tell the story of crucifixion. So thank you for that. Um, And we're we're just coming towards the last few minutes of the show. And I, I think it's been a very interesting segment and now within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the key, this key evidence is it provides great proof that uh, Jesus, peace be upon him, he actually survived the crucifixion. Um, because if we look at some of the historical evidence of the shroud, for example, uh, there are signs on the shroud which shows that a crown of thorns was put on a person's head. And if we look at the biblical reference, we find that Jesus, peace be upon him, uh, they had also, the soldiers at that time had also uh, put a thorn of crowns on the on the blessed hand of, uh, head of Jesus, as it mentions in John in chapter 19, verse 1 to 2. Uh, so, they, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a, th- a thorn, a crown of thorns, and put it on his head. And also, if we look at the the shroud, we see that uh, both of the legs of this person who was crucified, they were not fractured. And uh, this is also uh, found in the biblical references that the legs 
of Jesus, peace be upon him, they were not broken. And this is found in John in chapter 19, verse 34, where it is says that, but when they came to Jesus and found him already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And so within this verse, it shows that his uh, legs were not fractured and also that uh, one of the soldiers, they pierced the side of Jesus and a sudden flow of blood and water had gushed forth. And from the stains that we found from the shroud, it's also visible and that there's a stain around the chest area which shows that the heart, um, it was pumping blood and even a corpse um, if it is uh, stabbed it it does not blood does not gush forth from a particular cause so this itself is evidence that this person who who was wrapped around in this shroud he was actually he survived the crucifixion and s- these signs point to the fact that he did not die on the cross but rather he he survived it and this is what we find uh, in the Bible as well, that Jesus, peace be upon him, he himself said that uh, uh, the sign which he will give to the people will be the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah was that he was swallowed by a, a fish and uh, God Almighty had saved him and kept him alive three days and three nights in the belly of the of the, of the the fish. Similarly, Jesus, peace be upon him, sa- said that he himself will also be shown the similar sign and uh, similarly he survived the crucifixion and was then later taken to the tomb where he stayed there for three nights just as the prophecy mentioned uh, with the with the sign of jonah so these biblical references point to the fact that jesus peace be upon him he survived the crucifixion and it's a great historical reference even within the md muslim community and this is uh, this is, as mentioned, of, of great uh, great reverence within the eyes of the Amdi Muslim community. So with that, um, we'll close this particular segment and I'll pass the mic on to our host, Brother Vali, to close this particular segment. Oh, yes, thank you very much. Uh, yes, uh, quite right in what you were saying about the Turin Shard. I think it's also worthy of mention that the founder of the Amdi Muslim community, contrary to the views of both the Christians and the Muslims of the time, uh, advanced this particular uh, uh, statement, this particular assertion, uh, that he was both saved by God Almighty, that uh, Jesus was put on the cross and survived the ordeal of the cross. And this is what the Turin shout seems to indicate, that the person was wrapped in the cross, uh, was indeed crucified, but ha- was alive, uh, as you mentioned quite uh, quite eloquently, uh, when he was uh, when he was wrapped in that, uh, and so something that uh, would support the founder of the Amdimus community in his claim to this particular to this particular episode. Anyway, we we do come to the end of this uh, broadcast, and uh, it leaves us to thank those people who have contributed. Uh, to the preparation of uh, the running order, the producer uh, Farva uh, Mubashir is worthy of her gratitude, as uh, are her researchers, Kutsi Ward, Salia, and Neha, and uh, Muhammad Shafiq, our uh, intrepid engineer, 
uh, beavering away in the engineering room is also very much worthy of our gratitude for making sure that everything ran smoothly. Uh, we also need to thank those people who uh, came on to the show, like Khalid Safir, uh, happiness uh, coach and entrepreneur. Uh, we were also joined by Pam Moon, an expert on the Shroud, and we heard uh, the voices of Arif Khan, an expert on the Shroud, as we uh, as we did uh, listen to Bob Rucker uh, in his extensive uh, research on this on this particular topic. So thank you to our listeners. Do join us again Monday to uh, Friday, seven to nine o'clock on the Breakfast Show. Until then, uh, salam alaikum from both of us, and here's the news.